Hey, all you nature nerds. This is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds. This is Megan. And Jen. And we're here telling you stories of nature and man and their collisions. And other stuff. A real quick shout out here, Jen, for a previous episode we did. Yeah, let's hear it. So do you remember Angela Hernandez? Yes. She fell off the cliff. She fell. Well, her car car flew off the cliff in Big Sur. Yeah. Yeah. So we had uh, someone on Instagram, student nurse Skip, all one word, uh, mentioned and gave a shout out to Angela and her girlfriend. They have a TikTok account at Shark Gorilla, all one word. And I looked at it and it's um, they do a lot of music. It's really cool. So, you know, if you have a chance, go check it out. Definitely. I also would like to give a shout out. One of our new favorite people, Victoria Mm -hmm. Williams. What's up, Victoria? She has her own YouTube account called Victoria Knits. And she's in Montana. And good God, I love her so much. She's amazing. I just want to say your cat, Jesse. I love your cat. She reminds me of my cat, Truman. Yeah. And now Megan's cat, Nacho. Nacho. Black cat energy. Yes, a lot of black cat energy. And I love that while you're trying to talk (laughs) on your YouTube channel, that he just keeps like, he's all over the place. It makes us happy. Anyway, just watching the YouTube, just I want to come to Montana. I want to hang out. I want to like drink a glass of wine or a cup of coffee and just I want to go hiking. I want to see some turkeys and do all the things. Let's do it. I've always wanted to do cross country skiing. Yeah, and the cross country skiing. And Mm -hmm. Megan, she's knitted a couple of things. I've knitted some stuff. She's knitted some stuff. We also heard that there's a really good like male-female ratio. <laughs> I think it's like nine to one in Montana. Yeah. Men so to women. there could be, you know, some possibilities there. And it's Montana, so there's got to be beards. A lot of beards Just happening. everywhere. Oh, yeah. yeah a lot yeah, of yeah. lumberjack action <laughs> happening. Just so. just the snow, Jen. That's the only thing. That, but it seems like Victoria has a, a warm house. So. so in other words, just let us know when we can come visit. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are some good dates for you? You're like, we'll work it out. We'll work we'll out the itinerary. Out. <laughs> Please go check out her YouTube channel, especially if you're into knitting. Like, hiking. Hiking, like all the things. Stories, family. And check out her cute family and oh grandkids. They're adorable. Oh my God. I love the trailer. Oh my gosh. Victoria, the trailer you made it was so funny. It was we so great. It. And thank you for giving us a shout out on your page. Yeah. And you put us on your link tree. That's amazing. Thank we feel, you so we much. feel super honored. We also will have a Patreon shout out at the end i did want to mention jen that from our last episode norman olestad we had like another mauro prosperity moment he didn't follow us which is fine that's fine but he did like the post that he was in and then i totally fangirled and sent him a message and was just like we think you're a badass right and, and he, he was back. like thanks i love how we you know like especially survival stories these people are still out there and like doing the thing. So I love that we can interact with them. Yeah, I have yet to have that happen on any of mine. But you never know, because we're going to put out our Patreon episode, the person I'm talking about, we follow them on Instagram. Oh, maybe it'll happen. You never know. Yeah, could happen. I do have some science news, Jen. 
Oh. Would you like to hear science news? I would love to hear. I was just waiting. I was sitting here just like looking over there. Like I'm drinking some coffee. It's morning time. I'm like, where's the science news? I need it. need that science (laughs) news first thing in the morning. So I got this science news from sciencenews.org. I still think that's hilarious. Uh, And it's about elephants. It's mostly just like a functional type thing. I guess some scientists have been doing studies on how elephants suck up stuff into their trunks to suck up food or water or whatever. Yes. They use the ends of their trunks to kind of like pick up things very delicately. But then they also, so they did an experiment and they cut up rutabaga cubes. Okay. And the elephants would daintily grasp the rutabaga cubes if they were like one by one. Uh-huh. But if it was in like a big group of rutabaga cubes, they would just suck them up like a vacuum. I think that's kind of fun. Scientists have estimated that elephant trunk airflow is 30 times as fast as a human sneeze. Wait a second. 30 times as fast as a human sneeze is the airflow. Right. Oh, I guess so like the force. if they blew out thing. like force. It would be like 30 times one human wow. sneeze. That's... Imagine getting blasted by that. Jesus. <laughs> it's just like your hair. It's like a cartoon. <clears throat> uh, so the way that elephants do it is they dilate their nostrils which kind of makes sense i mean it's Mm -hmm, like a little mm -hmm. bit obvious and then they can suck up or snort up stuff with that 30 times i guess the flow rate is equivalent to 24 shower heads at once or 30 times a human sneeze the force of like sucking up stuff but they're also like you said they can be so delicate because that's how they paint yeah I think we mentioned that in the elephant episode is that, yeah, they're they're painters. They are. I just thought it was neat that someone had done a study to see exactly how they suck things up. And also, I don't know, I think about it like that is their nose. Uh Uh-huh. They also use it like an arm. Yeah. It's so versatile. I know. When I say they paint, they probably Mm -hmm. don't all paint. Right. I mean, just the ones that want to paint. Right. That have a desire to be artistic. They're super smart and have different (laughs) personalities. And I'm sure some of them are into it and others aren't. It's true. Like, I'm a terrible painter. I can do stick figures. Um, But the findings that they are using from this research, they're going to use this information uh, in technology to develop robotics, suction features in robotics. I thought that was the neatest thing was that they're studying nature to be like, okay, Mm -hmm. how can we mimic? Well, if that's the case, then they could just be talking about like vacuum cleaners. That's true. <laughs> so yeah, that's my that's my science news of the week. Oh, that was great. Thank you for talking about elephants because I love it. Elephants are kind of like at the top of our bucket list. It's true. We both know we're going to go to the Sheldrick Trust. Which my brother for my upcoming birthday. Did we talk oh, about yeah. this? Oh yeah, you didn't talk about it, but you yeah. posted it. My yeah. brother uh, made a donation to the Sheldrick Trust in my name and adopted an elephant for That me. is so awesome for your birthday. Well, happy birthday, Megan. Thank you very much. How does and it feel to be 29? You know, again. I've been 29 for so long that it feels amazing. Yeah. I've really, I think I've perfected 29 at this point. I just want to throw out that like happy belated birthday to you. We didn't talk about your birthday because you don't talk about your birthday so much. But I'm just not really into birthdays. I'm like, yeah. It happens. It happens. I don't know. Yeah, I'm much more into other people's birthdays, if Mm -hmm. I can remember them. I only remember my birthday because it's on a national holiday. Right. I have a different story for us this week. And you have no idea what I'm going to talk about. I have zero idea what you're going to talk about. I kind of mentioned a few things that I was like rolling around and things I've been reading about. And I know I've mentioned some other things, but they'll come later. All right. Because I... Decided to do something totally different. And it's Mm -hmm. also not a survival story per Mm -hmm. se, but it is. I thought for Pride Month, I would cover some famous LGBTQ plus 
scientists or people in STEM. That's very cool. I'm going to focus on a particular person, but I'm going to go through a few others. Um, there are just quick bios. I read this in one of the articles I was looking at about diversity in science for scientists. Mm-hmm. And they were saying diversity is so important because it's important to have people from all different backgrounds making decisions about how we should investigate the world around us because you get a more complete picture of that world. So you can't just have all one kind of people White dudes. Yes. Studying science or straight people. Right. You really need to have everybody coming from all walks with different thoughts and different experiences. Mm -hmm. It's all about the theories and the testing and trying to understand, you know, so it's good to have different backgrounds. Because June is Pride Month in the US, I thought it would be good to like honor those people. And there were kind of, it's already been June, so probably I could have done this during the month, but... Pride is every month, really. Yes. It's just like Black Lives Matter. It's every month. Every month. Every day. It always matters all the time. So this is to honor those people who were involved in scientific discovery or biology or whatever, nature. And I'm going to talk about a few of them that are historic scientists. We're going to talk about Sir Francis Bacon. He was um, around from 1561 to 1626. He was kind of into everything. He was a lawyer, a statesman, a philosopher. But what led to his claim of fame, I guess, is he was remembered as the father of the scientific method. Right. And so while science textbooks celebrate all his accomplishments, they usually leave out the fact that he was most likely gay. He had several dozen. This is, I'm pulling this information, you know, so I have all the links Mm -hmm. at the end and you can guys can look it up but several dozen attendants so up to 75 they said 75 attendants in his household that were all gentlemen waiters many of whom he gave lavish gifts and important appointments and Mm -hmm. they were found letters between him and his mother and brother that suggest that he considered many of them much more than servants there was one in particular this young man toby matthew and he became his closest friend and confidant and was the inspiration for one of his most famous essays called a friendship social life aside we would have a much bleaker understanding of the universe today without him that's true so in everything that he contributed to science i feel like you know people just for whatever reason you know different times in different places is either accepted or not accepted but mm-hmm. it was never something that was you know unless you really look into somebody's history it was never like documented Right. Do you remember in the 90s, it was like when people started coming out, it was kind of like a big deal. Yeah. People got murdered. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. And it's like before that, it was even worse. You know, it's like progressively well, especially gotten better. because of the AIDS epidemic yeah. and because it just it stigmatized mm-hmm. everybody and everybody was scared. That was terrible. Actually, I was listening to something the other day, sorry, about pride and how it's kind of become this mainstream deal. And there are people who are not so happy about that and people who are happy about that. You know, like I bring my kid to pride parades when we were in Honolulu. We used to skate in the pride parade. Uh, It was like kind of the exciting part of our October because they celebrate in October. The thing that I listened to was like, because pride started as a protest. The Stonewall. Yeah. Yeah. There are some people in the LGBTQ community who don't like that. It's become so mainstream because like some people don't want people who are into kink and all that stuff like going, but it's like, that's historic. Like that's part of it. But the, but the part of it that I think is important is that it's accepting everybody for who they are. No matter what. And them being able to be who they are Mm -hmm. without getting discriminated against or persecuted or murdered because of 
how they see themselves or how they love someone how they love someone how they want to live their lives i think that's that's the whole point is whatever you're you wherever you fall like when you talk about a spectrum that's how i see it there's like a whole spectrum of people and they can fall anywhere on that spectrum Mm -hmm. and it should be okay the next one was Florence Nightingale. From 1820, she was born in 1820 and died in 1910. She's most known as a nursing pioneer. Um, she also was an amazing statistician. Her numbers literally saved lives. She was like 90 when she died? Yeah. She made um, important contributions to data visualization um, with statistics. Mm-hmm. She's also known to have had two passionate relationships with women during her life. One was with her aunt, my Smith, who nursed her back to health during a serious illness and became her protector, interpreter, and consoler. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, you know, it could be a, like loosely related aunt. I don't sure, know. Sure, sure. The other was an unrequited infatuation, they say, with a cousin. So keeping it in the family. Florence. <laughs> Named Marianne Nicholson. She wrote of her that I have never loved but one person with passion in my life, and that was her. Oh. Sarah Josephine Baker. Oh, yeah. Wait, what is she? What is she? I know that name. They say she was best known for tracking down Typhoid Mary. Oh, that's right. And oh, she, I love that story. Typhoid Mary, that the Irish a, immigrant. That lady is, she was crazy. <laughs> she was like, she's like, she, I'm not washing my hands. She's like, look. For nobody. And then she went back to doing it. I love it. <laughs> she just got, kept giving everybody typhoid. I mean, I'm, I'm sure of, they didn't love it. But, I mean, no, yeah. But she was nuts. Yeah. So she was the first director <laughs> of the New York, uh, New York's Bureau of Child Hygiene. And she was instrumental in the force for child and maternal health in the U.S. She was well known as a lesbian and a feminist. Oh. Um, they actually called her Dr. Joe. And she was very well accepted by her colleagues and well respected. Did she have like out relationships? I believe that she did. So she it says that she were she was a member of the I've never heard of this, but the Heterodoxy Club, which was um, a radical discussion group made up of more than 100 women. And that's where they referred to her as Dr. Joe. So and she would minimize her femininity by wearing but she wore suits mm-hmm. she joked that colleagues sometimes forgot that she was a woman it says that she was discriminated against and had a you know some obstacles with like you know a high profile career mm-hmm. so i'm not sure about her it doesn't it didn't go into her personal relationships she was pretty out there with who she was and she was doing such great things and she was such an amazing person that I think people were just like, okay, well, that's just how she is. It is interesting that people who have some level of like notoriety, mm-hmm. you know, or like credentials, or credentials, yeah, yeah, can be more accepted in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But she was also yeah. in New York, which I feel would have been more progressive than right. Mm-hmm. If she were in like Georgia, Georgia, <laughs> I was going to say it, <laughs> Oklahoma, I Listen. don't know. <laughs> so... Um, also, so here's another one, Alan Hart from 18, he was born in 1890, died in 1962. So he was a prominent figure in the fight against tuberculosis, which at the time was like killing everybody in the US and mm-hmm. Europe. He was also one of the first female to male transgender people in the US to undergo a, a hysterectomy. He graduated from medical school. He had sought psychiatric help from one of his professors and eventually had asked him to perform the operation. Um, and there was a game changer, apparently giving him, as he wrote, a whole new hold on life mm-hmm. and ambitions worthy of his high degree of intellectuality. He married twice, wrote a lot of books. He was the director of the hospitalization and rehabilitation at the Connecticut State Tuberculosis Commission until his death. I think a lot of people have heard of Alan Turing. Was Alan Turing a mathematician? Yes. 
you will see his namesake behind the Turing machine, mm-hmm. which is the basis for all computers. Right. He was also responsible for breaking the Nazi Enigma code during World War II. That's right. Yep, because he was right. in the military. He worked with the military. That is also highlighted in the 2014 film, The Imitation Game. So he was born in 1912. He died in 1954. It says that the societies of some of the other scientists, like, you know, maybe they accepted their lifestyles or looked the other way. It was a crime in England at the time. Despite that, he was open with his friends at King's College in Cambridge, and he pursued relationships with men beyond what they mm-hmm. considered their circle of safety. And he was arrested for indecency in 1952 and pled guilty. And he was punished via hormone injections. No! And it oh. left him impotent. That gave me the bad kind of chills. It's really sad. And a couple of years later, they think that he killed himself by eating cyanide, mm. uh, cyanide-laced apple. Finally, in 2013, the British government granted a posthumous pardon as a computing pioneer and a war hero. Jeez, that's a long ass time. Yeah, because that happened when he died in 1954. So mm-hmm. in 52 was when he was had the hormone injections. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I'm going to focus on one person. This is the last person. I'm going to kind of just do a quick bio and then we'll get into a, the story of the person I wanted okay. to talk about. Cool. So also, we all know Sally Ride. Oh, yeah. Sally Ride. Born from uh, 1951 and she passed away in 2012. Mm-hmm. So she was the first American woman in space. She was on the shuttle Challenger. Mm-hmm. She was the director of the California Space Institute at the UC San Diego and started her own nonprofit called Sally Ride Science to inspire children to pursue their interests in science and math. By the way, I was trying to decide between two science news today. One was the elephant and the other was the neutron star getting eaten by a black hole. That's crazy. But I don't know enough about space. Space. Yeah, I, mean, I'm <laughs> I didn't feel comfortable. <laughs> yes. Talking about it. Anything that has to do with space, I'm like, that's, I'm like, I don't. That's hard. But that would have been a really good fit for this. Oh, I know, man, right? Now I'm well, regretting. I mean, I'm just going to talk about her just real quick. The Sally Ride Science nonprofit. She actually founded it with the help of two friends and her partner Tam O'Shaughnessy. This is a quote from her sister, Sally's sister. It says most people did not know that Sally had a wonderfully loving relationship with Tam for 27 years. Wow. And this was after she died of pancreatic cancer in 2012. It says Sally never hit a relationship with Tam. They were partners, business partners. They wrote books together. They were very close friends, of course, and they knew and loved each other. And they considered Tam a part of their family. That's wonderful. And today, Tam O'Shaughnessy honors her partner's legacy as the executive director of the Sally Ride Science. Nice. Did they ever get married? I don't know. It doesn't say. Like I said, those are some quick bios, so I don't have all the info, but you can definitely go look it up. Check it out. And now I wanted to focus mainly on Rachel Carson. Love Rachel Carson. We all love Rachel Carson because she's freaking amazing. So I'm fitting her in here because there was something that I I didn't really know that much about. And when I kind of looked into it more, I still don't know. And I'm, I'm not going to say how she identified herself. I really can't say because she never said. Right. All I can say is that is a 100% true fact that she had a 12-year friendship relationship with mm-hmm. another woman. And that woman was her soulmate and the love of her life. And it was very apparent in letters that they shared. There's no indication that it was ever sexual, mm-hmm. but that's between them and I don't know and no one knows. Mm-hmm. All I can say is that I feel like she fits, like we said, it's on a spectrum. She fits and we all love her. So I thought it'd be cool to talk about her here. Yes, 
I like that. Okay. So the information that I got on Rachel Carson, there's a lot. You mm-hmm. know, she's she's famous. Yeah. There's a couple of links that we'll share that where I got some information, but also I watched the PBS uh, American Experience on Rachel Carson oh. that aired January 24th, 2017. You can find it on, of course, uh, PBS. You can pull it up from there, or you can go to the Amazon Prime and watch it. PBS. What are you doing? Just looking at a picture of her. That's what I do sometimes. <laughs> so Rachel Carson was born in Springdale, Pennsylvania, which is about 13 miles north of Pittsburgh to Maria McLean and Robert Warden Carson. And she was born on May 27th, 1907. Just another Gemini. Oh my God. Just saying, we're kind of an amazing group of people. There's also a lot of Gemini serial killers, but it's fine. <laughs> Look, we're very diverse, okay? She was the youngest of three. She had a sister, Marion, and a brother, Robert. Uh, Marion was eight years older than her, and Robert was 10 years older than her. Oh, wow. So there's kind of a gap there. Her mother had been educated at this like really elite Presbyterian high school in Washington, D.C., and was an accomplished singer and musician. Before she got married, she was a school teacher, but she gave up teaching to raise her kids. And actually in the documentary, it talks about how Rachel was her favorite because she was very intelligent, curious. She loved reading and she really connected with her mom. I'm not saying that the older kids were like, you know, they just, I just don't think they were into it, like reading and nature and the mom was. Well, and maybe Rachel was an unexpected surprise. Maybe. What, whatever the reason, her mother also had a love of nature and that, mm-hmm. that's how they connected. They spent a lot of time outdoors and her mom taught her like bird songs and taught that's her a lot cool. about the flora and fauna. They had like 60 acres. So her father, Robert Carson, was a traveling insurance salesman and he was gone a lot, obviously, because of that. But he didn't make much because they lived very frugally in this kind of ramshackle house. It wasn't a very nice house. That's a fun, that's a fun name for a house. I like saying it. Ramshackle. Yeah. So they didn't have running water. I don't know if they had power. It's like that. But they had 65 acres, which is nuts, right? That's so land, she yeah. ended up exploring around and she was really into, like I said, she was very into reading and she started writing at an early age, often like writing about animals oh. as early as the age of eight. And they used to get this magazine called the St. Nicholas League. It was like a kids, I don't know if it was just for kids or everybody, but it had like, I think it was mostly kids like stories and puzzles and you know things inside and they would get that once a month and in may of 1918 when she was 11 years old she submitted a story and it was accepted it was called a battle in the clouds she wrote it because her older brother had gone into the army Mm -hmm. air service in france and he had sent her a letter battle in the clouds and she wrote this and they published it a couple of months later is that like the 19 early 1900s version of highlights yes i feel like it's (laughs) like that or maybe it was like similar to like kids Yes. Uh, or what was the other one we talked about? Nature or world? The other we talked about in an earlier episode. It. And I yeah. looked it up and then I forgot already. But um, so by August 1919, they had published three more of her stories. Oh, wow. They all had kind of a military theme because I think she was thinking about her brother and mm-hmm. it was, you know, that time. And they sent her $10. Wow. Which was Imagine being like a little kid and she's already like providing something back to her family. Imagine being that good of a writer. Well, that's just something I'm just so jealous of that, you know, that ability to write. Mm -hmm. And she was definitely gifted from an early age. So a couple of years later, they even started paying her a cent a word for a good story. Dang. I know. What is that in today's money? A dollar a word? Five dollars a word? I just made that up. I don't know. That's great. So you can go over there and like Google stuff. 
Well, it doesn't tell you, it doesn't say the cent, but $1 in 1919 was equal to 1579 in 2021. Whoa, that's crazy. That's a lot of money. She was obviously she was very into the natural world and all the things about it, particularly the ocean, which later became a part of like her writing and part of her favorite literature. So she had attended Springdale's. They had like a small school and she was there until 10th grade. And she, of course, graduated on top of her class, but there were like 44 students, but still (laughs) she was probably the best one. Then after that, she went to the Pennsylvania College for Women, which is today known as the Chatham University, which, you know, they're like, she's like their main person. Yeah. They have like a bust of her in the school. I'm pretty sure they have that or a statue or something. Everything is named after her. Right. She's like Carson School of Medicine. <laughs> yeah. Carson Library. Well, there's a whole wildlife refuge named after her. So. That's true. That's true. So she originally started studying English because I think she was like, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to study English. But yeah. she loved science or she loved, you know, the natural world. And so she decided to switch her major to biology in January of 1928. And to do this, her parents had to subdivide and mortgage some land and put it up for sale. Her mother also gave piano lessons and did odd jobs in town to try to get her through. They say at college she didn't make friends easily. People thought she was kind of like detached and a loner, like not interested. Hmm. And on weekends, she would either go home to see her mom or her mom would come to see her. Oh my God, that's cute. I know. She was, they were really close. So all of her friends or her fellow students thought she was a little weird. But actually, when they got to know her, they realized that she just was super shy. Oh, she's like the ultimate introvert. Ultimate introvert. And she also, they said she had acne on her face and shoulders, which also made her feel really insecure. Mm. Back then, they didn't have any like proactive or anything. Didn't have all the things. So you're just kind of like... Well, she should have just stopped eating chocolate. I mean, that's the thing, right? Why would anybody ever stop eating chocolate? (laughs) That's the first. That's the first and last thing. In the end, she did end up making a handful of friends because she would help people with their work because they realized that this girl's really smart. They realized, yeah, she was just shy about personal relationships and friendships. Back then, her friends actually called her Ray and she went to a college prom in 1928 but she never displayed any kind of romantic interest in men there's nothing wrong with that it doesn't mean anything one way or the other because it could sure. be she's just really into her studies she's really you know she hangs out with her mom like there's just everybody has their there's their lots way. of reasons yeah there's so many reasons so I'm reading this from what things that I read, okay? Mm-hmm. So I'm not the one saying this, but they said she was very, they say deeply passionate, I'm using air quotes, about a biology professor she had named Mary Scott Skinker. Cool name. I like that name. Was she a herpetologist? That would be amazing. <laughs> Wait a second, was she? Well, she ended up, I don't know, because it just says that she she ended up changing her major and she followed that professor mm-hmm. to this place called Woods Hole for a summer research project. Oh. And that's how she very first, for the very first time in her life, she saw the ocean. Oh, wow. So I think that maybe Skinker was a marine biologist. Oh, okay. But, okay. well, you know, she probably dabbled in her She probably pathology. liked skinks, for sure. Oh. If I, I mean. If your name was Skinker, you would love skinks. Give me a freaking break. Well, you already love skinks. Well, yeah. But. Well, it would be just icing on the cake. Is that Woods Hole, Massachusetts? You would be a professor right now. Oh, 100%. Like with like shirts, you would make your own shirts. You would have a hat. Yes, I would embroider skinks. That would be like. On my shirts. Yes. There would be so many. The skinker of skinks. I would definitely make a lot of, I would definitely write a lot of papers. Right. With some kind of pun about skinks in them. <laughs> that would be amazing. I mean, the title of the paper that I wrote in uh, undergrad was 
A Tale of Two Seasons, which I thought was really funny. Right. Because it was about two seasons of work. Right. A Tale of Two Cities. Yes, I got it. You didn't need to explain it, but thank you. You're welcome. After she graduated, she was admitted into Johns Hopkins University in 1928. For some reason, she had to stay at the Pennsylvania College for Women her senior year because of financial difficulties, because we're getting into like depression. Depression time. Yeah. Yeah. But she did graduate magna cum laude in 1929, uh, did a summer course at a marine biological laboratory, and continued studies in zoology and genetics at Johns Hopkins in the fall of 1929. She did get her master's in zoology in June 1932. And she was going to keep going for her PhD, mm-hmm. but in 1934, she was forced to leave because her family needed help okay. financially. They just couldn't yeah. do it anymore. You know, I mean, depression, they, like, they've they kind of like used up all they have at this point. Yeah, and they and were already kind of It struggling. was already tough. Mm-hmm. A year later, her father died suddenly, and that made things even worse. Oh, no. So then it's like she needed to go help her mom. At the urging of her undergrad biology mentor, Dr. Skinker. I'm assuming it's a doctor because she's a professor, but who knows? Because you don't have to be a PhD to be a professor. True, true, true. So she settled for a temporary position with the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries. Is it like the beginning of the Fish and Wildlife Service? Yes. So they, she was like, hey, look, you should just, you need to work. Mm -hmm. Like, I know you want to finish your PhD. Things are not good right now. So just go get a job. Mm-hmm. And she, I don't know if she helped her or whatever, but she worked for U.S. Bureau of Fisheries and she was a writer. So she wrote in this like series of weekly educational broadcasts and it was called Romance Under the Waters. That's Everything awesome. had to be so like bougie. Right? It was a series of 52 seven-minute programs that were focused on aquatic life. And it was for, to get people, like the general public, like interested in fisheries and biology and listening to the Bureau's work. That's some amazing outreach. Yeah, you should look into it. (laughs) So she started also submitting articles on marine life in the Chesapeake Bay based on her research. That went to some local newspapers and magazines. And then her supervisor was like, wow, your romance thing under the seas is doing so well. And then you're also doing this. And it's being, you know, you're, you're a freaking good writer. Yeah. Like, this is insane. So he's like, okay, can you also do a public brochure about the Fisheries Bureau? And Mm. he just had her basically writing all kinds of stuff to get people involved. That's cool. Um, She sat for a civil service exam, which she outscored everybody, of course, course. because she's Rachel Carson. And in 1936, she was the the second woman hired by the Bureau of Fisheries for a full-time professional position as a junior aquatic biologist. Dang. That's cool. It's cool, but I'm like 1936, and she's only the second one. I don't know. Well, yeah, okay, that's true. I yes. mean, but but still, but still, good honor. Mm-hmm. You got, it got to start somewhere, right? So in January 1937, so just like a year later, her sister, her older sister, died. Mm-hmm. Um, her sister was 39 and had two daughters, Virginia, who was 12, and Marjorie, 11. So they came into the care of her, her and her mom. Mm. So now she's not only helping her mom, she's now got two kids. They ended up moving to Silver Springs, Maryland at that point, maybe to be closer to work. She's kind of already falling into that role of having to be the breadwinner for a family. Yeah. Because of her work with that Undersea series, Mm -hmm. the publisher Simon & Schuster contacted her about a book. Hmm. And that ended up being a book in 1941 called Under the Sea Wind. And it got like amazing reviews. But because it was 1941, and we just talked about this, December 7th, 1941. Yes, yes. Yeah. So it was released and got, it just didn't go anywhere because everything changed. Yeah. And World War II Took was over happening. the news. Yeah. Yeah. 
Somewhere in between 1939 and 1941, the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries became U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service during the Government Reorganization Act. When that happened, she, in 1941, she was officially a staff aquatic biologist at the, with the Interior, and that was with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So that's how that happened. Okay. Okay. Because I, as you know, I worked for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That's true. There is a Rachel Carson Wildlife Refuge, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's, I think that's how all that happened. So That's she cool. ended up working for Fish and Wildlife. She did try a couple of years later to leave. I think she was like, this is just a job. Yeah. A federal position. She's like, it pays the bills. But mm-hmm. I, I'm a writer and I want to be a writer. She kind of, a couple of years later, because her book was great, but it didn't go anywhere. But she attempted to leave to go try to focus on writing or look for other jobs that maybe worked better with her schedule for writing another book. You know, there's not a lot of jobs for naturalists and biologists, even today. Even today. It's hard to Mm -hmm. get a well-paying job as a scientist. So she ended up staying a little bit longer. Also, because a lot of the money for science was focused in technical fields because of the Manhattan Project. Oh, yes. They just want to blow shit up. So by mid-1945, Carson first heard about DDT. And we all know if if anybody where we're going with this because she's famous, especially for her book, Silent Spring, which is all Mm -hmm. about DDT and its effects or pesticides and effects on the environment and people. DDT was a revolutionary at the time. It was called the insect bomb. Because, you know, atomic bombs were all the rage back then. Mm -hmm. And it was only beginning to undergo some tests for safety and ecological effects. But they're like, we don't need to wait for those tests. Let's Mm. just like blast it everywhere and all over people and all over everything. Or Rachel was like, hey, you guys, you should really probably look into this because they were already starting to see side effects. She actually did write an article that she gave to Reader's Digest. And they're like, yeah, thanks. We're not interested. What? Well, they had too many jokes to write. I guess so. I remember getting the Reader's Digest oh my God. at our house. When Reader's I was... Digest is kind of the, I mean, do you, it was like humor in uniforms, like military jokes. Ugh. And then there was like another section of like jokes. It was just like a ton of jokes. I just remember it was just a small magazine we would get. And yeah. it was, as a kid, I was like, this is boring. Blah. <laughs> <laughs> Give me some Mad Libs. I kind of loved Reader's Digest. Really? A little about DDT. In uh, 1939, Paul Mueller discovered that it kills insects. Amounts that were deadly to insects seemed to be harmless. Appeared to be harmless to mammals and birds. Mm. In 1943, the U.S. Army sprayed over a million people with DDT in the Italian city of Naples. What? Yep. That's so messed up. You didn't know that, did you? By doing that, they stopped the typhus epidemic... Mm. and saved a lot of lives so they thought this is great it's like a magical thing like we saved so many lives what year did they do that in 1943 well my family was already out of there by then it's fine <laughs> but, <laughs> my God. but it was also used in north america and europe for um, malaria mm. because it killed mosquitoes and they mm. were like this is the best thing ever because we have there's all these mosquito-borne diseases and now you're killing mosquitoes so in 1948 he that guy Mueller received the nobel prize in um, physiology or medicine for his discovery of ddt and by 1959 40,000 tons of DDT were being sprayed every year on lands in the U.S. 40,000 tons. I mean, we've all seen it, like the dust crop, or mm-hmm. what, what are they called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think crop you're right. Crop dusters. Crop dusters, yeah, yeah. yeah. The crop dusters, like, flying around and just, mm-hmm. like, it's just everywhere. If you watch that PBS documentary, they talk about it a lot. 
And they have like a lot of reels and videos of, of even this, like yeah. people, just everyday people that buy like those riding lawnmowers. Yeah. You could get an attachment that in the exhaust is spray DDT out. Whoa. As you were like mowing your yard. Just murdering everything. Yeah. I do um, remember when I was in Louisiana for this trip once in like 2001, they had the Malathion trucks spraying for mosquitoes. I yeah. can imagine just like everyday people. And those were like government trucks driving around, spraying like the sides of roads Let's and stuff. Let's all just light well. a citronella candle. Wear a mosquito net <laughs> Everywhere time. you go. Just everywhere. <laughs> so as all that's kind of happening, she's still working with Fish and Wildlife. And she was, in 1945, she was supervising some writers and she became the chief editor of publications. So she's kind of moving up the ranks. So her position gave her some more opportunities to go into the field. And she got to choose more of her writing projects instead mm. of having to do a romance under the sea <laughs> under the sea <laughs> and she i know out. right but also had a lot of like administrative bs as mm-hmm. we well know so much everybody knows all the bs all the emails i'm sure she was just getting so many emails back then <laughs> <laughs> just constant emails just yeah constant. absolutely it's called letters in the mail i know just clickety click 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 she probably had like a really good letter opener oh yeah just like super sharp oh for sure i mean i do love letter openers no lie yeah like in the stamps always imagine her inbox you can't miss a day or you're just like under underwater with emails under the sea you're under the sea with emails <laughs> <laughs> She would be like, F that. So in 1948, she was working on some material for another book. Mm -hmm. And then that's when she's like, you know what, guys? I got to go write and I'm done with all your emails. She turned in her fish and wildlife uniform and hat. (laughs) I wonder if she did have a uniform. I bet she did. I'm sure. Everybody now has to wear it, even if you're in the office and it just looks silly. I I bet that she did. I bet it was a thing then. Guaranteed. Because it's that time when everyone wore stuff like that. It was like popular. For sure. Well, her book that she was working on at the time was still kind of ocean related, Mm -hmm. like her first one. But she also was kind of increasingly thinking about DDT effects on the environment. So this was kind of like also on her radar for sure. And she really wanted to like get enough evidence so that people, she could get other researchers and people to see that the pesticides were killing more than their intended targets of mosquitoes and whatnot. It was just like being sprayed everywhere. And she was like, how can we make people understand that this is going to have a way larger effect? Mm -hmm. And I just think it's crazy back then that, I mean, I guess, and we'll see later, like all these laws and acts were put in place to stop these things from happening. But back Mm -hmm. then they didn't have that. It was just like, oh, look, this happens. They didn't do any testing. And it was just like... Spraying it out into the world. People would drink spoonfuls of DDT to try to prove that it wasn't harmful. Aren't those people dead now? Well, well, yeah. I mean, but I don't, you know, know how they died. But it's because it was like 70 years ago. (laughs) That's why they're dead. She, like I said, she had tried to give an article to Reader's Reader's Digest to try to kind of put something out there. But the Reader's Mm. Digest, oh, this is it. They said it was too unpleasant. (laughs) They're like, that's really unpleasant. They're not going to be able to digest that. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I call wordplay. So in 1950, unfortunately, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had a breast tumor removed. And after that, they're like, okay, goodbye. You're good to go. She finished a book called The Sea Around Us. And it sold to Oxford University Press. Uh, the New Yorker agreed to publish some chapters in the winter of 1951 as profiles. 
And it was actually the first time a <laughs> non-human or nature subject had been chosen for the New Yorker. Oh. Yeah. That, 1951. Wow. Yeah. Because you... people are all that matters. And at that time, she's like, good, peace out, finally. 1951, she resigns, mm -hmm. retires from Fish and Wildlife to write full time. In 1952, this is relevant later, her niece, so that daughter, she had those two girls uh, mm -hmm. that from her Sister, sister who had passed yeah. Away, yeah so one of her nieces had given birth to this boy named roger christie in 1952 and that same year her book did really well i think because it was in the new yorker and people were like oh what's this this is so interesting we're actually right. learning something other than i don't know about people she had some money from that and she built this really beautiful house in southport island overlooking sheep scott bay and on maine's coast Ooh. And she had this beautiful view and she could sit there and then she's like, I'm just going to go there and I'm going to write. And she had running water and she could like use yes. a flush toilet inside. <laughs> well, she had moved out of her family home a long time right, ago. Right, right, Yeah, but I'm but just yeah, saying. It was a really nice place. Beautiful. While she was there, this is where she met her soulmate and fell in love. She met Dorothy Freeman and Dorothy had a husband, Stanley Freeman. Mm -hmm. They were her neighbors and they met in 1953 uh, when she moved into that house. And it's funny because Dorothy had heard that she was going to be coming there, knew of her because of her books and everything, and actually oh. wrote her a letter like, we're so excited. We can't wait to meet you. You should come over and like spend time with us. Mm -hmm. And they were naturalists too. Like they were really into the ocean. I mean, you know, because of where they lived and they would actually go in summer there. I don't think they stayed there year round, mm. but they had the same interests as her. I was going to say Maine is such a nature-y state. Yes. At the time, uh, Rachel was 46 and Dorothy was 55. Um, like I said, uh, Dorothy was married and her husband seemed like a super cool guy. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a grown son. There's a book that showcases all of their letters over the 12 years. And so it kind of starts from the beginning when they met till Rachel's death later. You can see their back and forth from the very first time they met. And so you can tell that like they just immediately hit it off. That clicked. So much like they were just like, you're the best human on this planet. I've never met anybody like you. And so they had a lot of what most would call passionate correspondence. I'm not saying sexual because I don't think anything is really sexual in nature, but a lot of letters were destroyed to protect them and their families. This is some of their correspondence. And um, this is um, a quote so from this is from the letter. It says, why do I keep your letters? Rachel had written to Dorothy in that winter. Why? Because I love you. Rachel would keep the favorite letters like under her pillow, like ones from Dorothy to her that would say, I love you beyond expression. My love is boundless as the sea. Oh. Yeah. So a lot of people were like, well, they were just great friends. And I'm like, yeah. But a lot of people were like, I don't write my friends that stuff. Yeah, I don't know if I would ever write a letter like that to you or to a, another person if I didn't feel like connection, yes. that like level. And I'll go into some more of her letters a little bit. But the way she writes is how I would write to my husband. Yeah. Like I would go nuts on how much I love him in a letter. Mm -hmm. But I would never do that with any other friend or family like member. Like a platonic friend or even someone you were very close with or... Right. No one's going to say for her or them right. what it was. Yeah. But it's very obvious that there was definitely a lot of love and what's... A very deep connection. Yeah. It seems like a romantic love. Mm -hmm. Because they were both worried about what happened with their letters, this is what they did. And this mm -hmm. is another thing. So they would um, use one envelope, but they would put two letters inside. One was for the family, like to be read aloud. 
Like, oh, she's working on her book and they're doing great. And then, and the other one was for private reading. Yeah, that definitely feels like a relationship. Definitely. Like a low key, mm-hmm. under the radar. I don't want anyone to know because we could possibly be like persecuted for the way we feel about each other type of situation. So the letters that were read privately, they had a word for it. They would be placed in the strong box. It was a code for letters to be destroyed. Like they would say, did you put them in the strong box? Wow. Rachel would ask Dorothy, and if not, please do. It's like a Mission Impossible situation here. It's love. Yeah. And they're they're definitely hiding hiding their full feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Not Um, from each other, but from other people. Yeah. And I mean, for so many reasons, I can see why they would do that. So I guess at some point, uh, Rachel was putting some papers together. And she was, I think, something that she was going to give. Maybe it was at the end of her life. She was going to give them to Yale. I think, you know, how they keep collections of people's writings. And Dorothy had read about how some of the papers were from her recently opened and contain levels about her relationship with women. I don't know how something got out, but she wrote to Rachel and was like, dear, please use the strong box quickly, warning that their letters could have been meanings to people who were looking for ideas. They did destroy a lot of letters, but they didn't destroy all of them. And Mm. the ones that weren't destroyed, like I said, they're in a book that was published in 1995. Her book that she had been working on while she was there in Maine was called The Edge of the Sea, and it was Mm. published in 1955. It was a bestseller. It was also another one where they, it was like serialized, like they took bits of it and put Mm. it in the New Yorker. And right after that, they're like, write another one. Like, we're (laughs) going to give you some money to do another one because it was so popular. It was so popular. It was Mm -hmm. so great. Just as she was like going to start working on that, her niece, the one that had the son, she died of pneumonia. Oh my gosh. Yes. So now Rachel was in the position of needing to take care of her son. Roger, he was four years old. Oh, wow. So she actually adopted him. So now she's still taking care of her elderly mother. And now she just adopted a four-year-old. And she had recently had, you know, that breast Breast tumor removed. She described the little boy, Roger, as lively as 17 crickets. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you could relate. I can relate. A hundred percent to that. My boy is like 17,000 crickets. (laughs) So she had to put her writing projects off a little. And she, you know, as much as she loved that kid and she loved her mom, there was a resentment there because she just wanted to do the damn thing. She had so much that she wanted. And you don't sit down and you know how it is. I mean, anybody who has kids Mm -hmm. or friends who have kids or you have nieces or nephews, like you, they just come up to you like every three seconds. Yes. And they're like, did you see this? What about this? And imagine back then there's no TV. Well, there was TV, but there was no like. Yeah. Electronics. Electronics. And TV was like scheduled. It was a thing that you watched yeah. at a certain time. Was, he was constantly like on her heels, probably oh, constantly asking her things to do things. And her mother was pretty old at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She couldn't write. Because when you write, you have to sit and you got to be completely focused and in it. Yes. Because once you get that, once you get going, if you stop that momentum, it, it's painful almost. Right. And yeah. she was a real writer. Like, mm-hmm. you know, she probably knew how to do it better than if I sit down like I sit down and I'm like I did five minutes of work (laughs) it's time for a break I love that TikTok anyway so yeah she had to put it off I think too she didn't choose that life 
to take care of her family. Yeah. It was kind of thrust upon her and she was a responsible person and did take care of them. But it's not like she was like, hey, I want to take these kids or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just these things happened in her family. Also, let me just say that people who talk about how, you know, whenever they are going to become parents, they're not going to allow their kids to interact with screens like that stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get it. I was that person. Oh, yeah. Definitely. You start out that way. And then you have a kid and then you're like, here's this screen. Please zone out for two hours so I can do something other than... Well, especially over the last couple of years. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because they're just home all the time. And now that there's some school happening... Mm -hmm, Some outings. My five-year-old is like... She's not coping well with getting up in the morning every morning. <laughs> She's like, Mom, but I've been getting up at 11 for like She's the last like, year. But online class isn't until 1030. Like, why do why I even are, need to Why are we up? waking up at 630? Anyway, but yeah, and I'm like, you have to go to school every day. That's life. And she's like, but that's not how life has been. And I'm like, that's life. <laughs> Get up. <laughs> it's interesting that while she was, you know, while all this was happening, she had been working on another writing project. It was the title, the running title she had was Man Against the Earth. Oh, Which I think is really interesting because a lot of what was happening, it seemed at the time, was that man or humans were basically trying to dominate nature. Like we can do all the things, we can kill all the insects, we can make everything comfortable for us. Right. And that seemed to be the theme. And she was like, hold up, hold up, hold up. No. Like that's not how it is. That's not how it works. Yeah. She was still following the DDT and kind of seeing what was happening with the research. And it was also the time of like nuclear bombs and seeing how that was affecting, the fallout was affecting humans. I mean, they were dying of radiation poisoning all Mm -hmm. over the place. They did that big test over the Marshall Islands, which Mm -hmm. was horrific and the effects of that. So people were just starting to kind of like, oh shit, you know, this actually is probably bad for people somehow. Weird. All of this was happening. And then she started changing her focus and was like, you know what, I am going to focus on the misuse of pesticides. And that's when she decided to start working on Silent Spring. She wanted to challenge the practices of agricultural scientists and the government and call for a change of the way humankind viewed the natural world. You know, I think that we've talked about this in a couple other episodes. Bad things happen when humans continue to view animals as under their dominion. Oh, yeah. So in 1958, there was a member of this committee called um, the Committee Against Mass Poisoning that was getting in the newspapers and um, calling attention to the insecticide aerial spraying programs that now all of a sudden insects weren't dying, but everything else was. Oh, because probably insects were uh, figuring out how to survive through it. Yes, they were adapting. Yeah. So one Massachusetts um, housewife and bird watcher... Her name was Olga Owen Huckins, which I love that. That's a great name. She called the programs inhumane, undemocratic, and probably unconstitutional that she wrote this in a letter to Rachel. So the committee had filed a lawsuit in New York and Huckins, that Olga Huckins, suggested Mm -hmm. that Rachel cover the story. I love it. I love that. Olga was like, F you guys, this isn't working. She's like, I'm seeing all these birds die, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She's a bird. Yeah. The bird watchers and the people who are out, they're seeing what's happening, especially with the fish. And that'll come up later. I like that. Olga's initials spell out O. Oh. 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 It's like, gonna make my O face. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. So because of this, um, Rachel went to New York and pitched a story to her editors at The New Yorker. And he's like, you know, we don't usually think of The New Yorker as changing the world, but maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to do that. Step it up, New Yorker. Step it up, New Yorker. And they did. 
Don't just be a bougie magazine. Right, exactly. So, I mean, they are bougie I magazine mean, they are with kind their of bougie, bougie yeah. cartoons. So in the fall of 1958, another thing happened. Her mom had a stroke. She mm. was 89. Rachel had to step back again, even though she's kind of building up to going and being involved in writing this book and being part of this lawsuit. Mm-hmm. She had to pull back again because she needed to take care of her mom. But that December, her mother passed away. So only a few months oh. later, her mom passed. In the spring of 1959, it was the first time she was without her mom her whole life. Wow. Oh, and they had such a close connection. Yeah. And she was 52, I think, at this point. Anyway, so she actually also at the same time started getting more ill. She mm. found more lesions on her left breast. And in April, the following year in 1960, she had a mastectomy. Mm. And her surgeon, this will make you mad right here. Her surgeon was like, okay, yep, we took every, we took it all out. You know, we, you know, we did a mastectomy. And I guess it was really painful and terrible and hard to recover from. Mm-hmm. They didn't give her any information about the tumors or the tissue that they'd removed. He recommended no follow-up treatment. And when she asked him questions, he lied, which I guess was common back then because she didn't have a husband. And they didn't <sighs> feel like telling a woman was the right thing to do because they couldn't handle the information that they were given. Doesn't that make you just like... I am infuriated right now i know so they didn't tell her they actually told her that it was benign jesus and it wasn't it was malignant so she just like went on with life because they didn't tell her shit and she didn't know but even through all this she didn't talk about her cancer the only person that she talked about was dorothy of course Mm -hmm. she didn't even tell the little boy roger because she didn't want to worry him and later when you watch if you watch the documentary which i highly suggest you do he's interviewed he's and he's just like yeah you know the only thing is she never talked to me about these things she didn't kind of you know she didn't tell me which i know why she was trying to protect me but at the same time later it was kind of devastating to him right because he lost his mom and now he's about to lose her right she also didn't want it getting out because here she was going up against these big chemical companies she thought that maybe they would think she was trying to use it to suggest that they're the reason right she's got cancer and all this is happening so i wonder if it could be the reason though i I mean i'm not just trying to just but she's out in nature a lot and yeah it's getting sprayed everywhere yeah i don't know because i think about that a lot um my on my dad's mom's side there were like 13 kids Mm -hmm. over half of them died in their 40 by their 40s or 50s of some sort of cancer and i'm like where did you live like what right yeah i feel like it had to be something like that Mm mm-hmm Because she was so sick, it's just like kind of perpetuated, like things kept happening. She got the flu, she had staph infections, probably Mm -hmm. from the surgeries and others. She got um, rheumatoid arthritis, eye infections. She would write to Dorothy and be like, what? I don't know. She's like falling apart. She's falling apart. Physically. Yeah. Yeah. So working on this book, can you imagine? Like I try to, I mean, there's like, I have a headache. I have a sinus headache. (laughs) I can't work today. (laughs) Yeah. If I wake up and I'm a little out of it, I'm like, I can't work. Yeah. But she was she kept pushing to finish her book because Mm. she felt like at this point it was so important to get her that message out to people Mm -hmm. and she felt like it's her mission this is what she was meant to do it's what she has to do right she was told when she went back for i think you know going back and back again that she was basically had a matter of months to live Um, Once she found out what was really going on. Right. Because the cancer had spread. It had spread to like her lymph nodes. They found it in her collarbone. It was working its way through her body. And some people like Dorothy thought that the actual writing of the book and how hard she was working on it was actually... Like exacerbating it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She had told her like, why don't you just forget it? 
you know, never mind the book, you know, do something like a shorter version of it, you know, do like a few, I don't know, essays to put in the New Yorker and just be done with it. Mm. But she was like, no, I got it. This is I have to do this. And she pushed through in December of 1961. She finished Silent Spring. She sent it to the editor of the New Yorker. Started writing pieces of it. So by that January of 62, it was out. It appeared in three parts by that next year. So it was like three parts of it were coming out. And I want to read just an excerpt from that. How she says that everything is connected to everything else. And she wrote that we poison the gnats in a lake and the poison travels from link to link of the food chain and soon the birds of the lake margins become its victims we spray our elms and the following springs are silent of robin's song not because we spray the robins directly but because the poison traveled step by step through the now familiar elm leaf earthworm cycle these are matters of record observable part of the visible world around us they reflect the web of life or death that scientists know as ecology. So beautiful. It's all connected. She writes so well, it's hard for me to read it. It's like such a horrific situation, mm-hmm. uh, but somehow she's making it di- digestible, honestly. Well, and she it, it's, she says it so eloquently, mm-hmm. and it makes you really see the big picture. I, that's one reason why I really love ecology is learning about or observing the relationship between everything. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I love that. That's like my number one favorite thing about ecology. Yeah, I think that's what drew me into you. I'm getting a little emotional about it right now. It's okay. Don't are you getting all teary eyed? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) So once this came out, of course, she was completely attacked by the chemical industry and a few people in the government because they're like, she's an alarmist. You know, she's She's trying to like just throw us under the, you know, mm-hmm. under the bus on this stuff, but it, that's not it. And they try to come up with all these other excuses of why these things could be happening. So at the time, she there was this big interview. It was like a three-part interview with CBS. And in it, you could see it on the uh, documentary. She's You can tell she's wearing a wig because uh-huh. she's been go- undergoing um, chemotherapy. Yeah. yeah. And she had no hair. She was never shown standing because the cancer by then had spread to her vertebrae. And if she tried to stand for too long she would collapse and even the cbs reporter told the producer later like you got to get this out as soon as possible because she's she's gonna like he could tell like she's gonna go soon Jeez, like she was really at the end of her rope she was given months and it's already been another year right oh and the other thing about that cbs interview is they interviewed her and they also interviewed it's like they interviewed her and she's sitting in a chair Mm -hmm. and they're talking to her and like this kind of like with the bookshelf behind her and all this stuff yeah and then they go and they interview scientists and they're like they have like the bunsen burner thing they have things like boiling behind them they're in like a lab coat with like heavy glasses you know thick rimmed glasses and they're like well let me tell you (laughs) something about the 50s yeah just all white dudes i there's something about that aesthetic that cracks me up a little bit yeah it's just humorous it's humorous it's so and it's i think at the time i know things because i have this boiling water behind me right pipette over here but yeah yeah at the time i think people were like oh he's a legitimate scientist because look at all the bunsen burners (laughs) yeah right it was uh you know her this kind of older i mean she she looked much older than she was because Mm -hmm. she was so sick Sick. um she looked terrible really I mean, because she was really pretty and, you mm-hmm. know, healthy. And then she just, yeah, you can tell she's she's not doing well. So they called her and they used it against her. They called her a spinster, oh. using her cane, like 
hobbling around like this old lady spinster yeah makes you just want to punch some people but she pushed through and in 1962 president john f kennedy mentions that his scientific or his science advisory committee which is the psac president's (laughs) (laughs) wait a minute minute. wow That reminds me of the time that I came up with an email that included the, <laughs> that included the word orgy in it and sent it to a bunch of government officials and had to retract it and remake my email. This is the President's Science Advisory Committee, also known as the Peace <laughs> which I probably feel like at that time was probably accurate. Definitely. Should have been like the BSAC. They were supposed to be looking at the misuse of pesticides, you know, based mm-hmm. on her book. Um, she testified before Congress in 1963. Man, she's holding on. She is holding on. And in November 1963, a little bit later, was this the big Mississippi River fish kill. Right, yeah. So where the pesticide endron was discovered to be the cause of death of millions of fish. Mm-hmm. which validated this yeah which she's talking about exactly yeah because of her book and i'm just gonna throw this in there it launched all this um environmental movement mm-hmm. it started the clean air act in 1963 the wilderness act of 1964 national environmental policy act of 1969 clean water act and endangered species act of 1972 and also started um led to the establishment of the of epa in 1970 so wonderful I, I got some weird chills from all like so i don't know it just all happened just wonderful boom boom yeah. boom mainly because she pushed through mm-hmm. and got the message out so april 14th 1964 she passed away at the age of mm-hmm. 58 in silver spring she actually i think they said she died of a heart attack i think her body just gave up yeah it just couldn't anymore a couple of weeks later half of her ashes were buried at her mother's grave and the other half were given to dorothy And Dorothy spread them over the coast uh, where they lived in Maine at Sheepscot Bay. And in that, she wrote, Every living thing of the ocean, plant and animal alike, returns to the water at the end of its own lifespan, the materials which had been temporarily assembled to form its body. That's beautiful. Dorothy sat on a rock and watched the tide go out. So before Rachel got sick and even after when she still thought she might get better, she actually was thinking of another book. Oh. And listen to this. It's just crazy. The subject that fascinated her was that we live in an age of rising seas. She wrote, in our own lifetime, we are witnessing a startling alteration of climate. So she died before she could even start on that. And so it just kind of makes you thinking like, man, she was already on to it. Yeah. And if she could have lived to the ripe old age of 90 some, that would have imagined because people were listening to her. Yeah. People respected her. People, you know, Silent Spring like made a difference. Yes. So she wrote a book on climate change. What, how would that have altered how we are now? Yeah, absolutely. Would things be more advanced or ahead of, you know, the game Mm -hmm. now than they than they are yeah would there be less climate deniers or flat earthers (laughs) i know right back to her relationship with dorothy they had 12 years together it was all mostly through letters i'm trying to remember because i listened to it on the documentary but i didn't see it written anywhere but i think what they said is they spent a total of like 60 days together oh wow in those years but Mm -hmm. so it was mostly by letter and the book that i mentioned is called always rachel the letters of rachel carson and dorothy freeman from 1952 to 1964 and like i said it was published in 1995 by dorothy's granddaughter and it covers um almost 
750 letters between the two. Wow. And they said a lot of the letters were destroyed. Maybe those mm-hmm. um, strong box letters, yeah. letters, which rightfully so. That's that's between them. Between them. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, when you the ones that are were left, I mean, a lot of it is kind of just their, you know, talking about life and what they're working on. But there's a lot that, you know, are very romantic. Mm-hmm. but never sexual it was a deeply loving friendship relationship mm-hmm. they would you know she would write things i'm just gonna have like throw a few excerpts like never forget dear one how deeply i have loved you all these years she wrote less than a year before her death my own darling for your birthday this is to tell you as if you didn't know how dearly and tenderly i love you you have come to occupy a place in my life that no one else could fill and it is strange now to contemplate all the empty years when you weren't there but perhaps we shouldn't regret those years perhaps instead we should just give ourselves over to the wonder and gratitude that a friendship so satisfying and so full of joy and beauty could come to each of us in the middle years when perhaps we needed it the most darling you know how wonderful it is to have you i hope you do i love you rachel they're really sweet that's really sweet um and then about three months before she died she wrote this i've had a rich life full of rewards and satisfactions that come too few and if it must end now i feel i can have i that i have achieved most of what i wish to do that wouldn't have been true two years ago when I realized my time was short and I'm so grateful to have this extra time. My regrets, darling, are for your sadness, for leaving Roger when I so wanted to see him through manhood, and for dear Jeffy, that was her cat, whose life is linked to mine. But enough of that. What I wanted to write you is the joy and fun and gladness we have shared, for these are the things that I want you to remember. I want you to live on in your memories of happiness. I shall write more of those things, but tonight I'm wearied and must put out the light. Meanwhile, there is this word, and my love will always live, Rachel. If someone wrote me a letter like that, I would be like, are you moving to where I Are we moving in together? You love What's me. Happening? You love me, love me. You love me, love me. Yeah. Let's have a life. Yes. Yeah. Who knows? If they were, that was today, maybe they could have. Mm-hmm. But also, Dorothy was married, but Stan was very aware. Mm-hmm. And I think that he was just like, well, okay. Yeah. I love her. That's, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. So, well, for whatever reason that she chose not to reveal her intimate preferences or mm-hmm. sexual preference, there are many that think that she was forced to make that decision because of her cause. Like she, I think mm. she felt that pushing her cause forward for nature and the what she could do was more important than her own personal happiness. That's like the primary, yeah. So because at that time it would have been really controversial. It would have, yeah, and it would have ruined. It would have ruined it, right? She would have lost all credibility. So I feel like I get it. the fact that she had to take care of so many people and basically had to live a life of solitude and without the person that she loved and her soulmate to push her message forward and make sure it was heard. I feel like that is a survival story. Yeah, absolutely. That's the story of Rachel Carson as told by me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a beautiful story. I didn't know a lot of uh, like any of the personal stuff in her life. Yeah. And fun story. I have my copy of Silent Spring is actually an award that I received. Oh, yeah. It made me feel very like best kind of award ever. I bought my copy at the National Conservation Training Center. Yeah, Yeah. I bought it there a long time ago. So if you wanted to hear just a real, real quick, because it kind of ties into the organization to support. Mm -hmm. So if you want to hear about some other scientists, there's a couple out there that I think are still around. Ben Barr.
Mars. He's a neurobiologist at Stanford University, and he works on brain cells called glia, um, oh. and it revolutionized our understanding of the brain. So he became the first openly transgender man elected as a member to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, which is an organization that includes a lot of United States leading scientists. So good on you, Ben. Colin Turnbull was one of the first anthropologists to study ethnomusicology, Cool. The study of music of different color- cultures. He was an activist and he and his partner, Joseph Towles, I think that's how you say it, Towles. Um, they both unfortunately died of AIDS, but he made his mark there. Mm. Richard uh, Summerbell is a mycologist and a leading expert on how fungi affects the health of humans and the environment. He has been a LGBTQ plus activist and commentator on HIV AIDS since the 1970s. He's been around doing the thing for a long time. So That's very cool. Ruth Gates, a leading marine biologist, and I know you'll have heard of her because she was um, in the documentary Chasing Coral. Oh, yeah. So yeah. she studies coral, coral reefs and uh, her work creating super corals that are more resistant to climate change was what they talked about in that documentary. And she's also an inspiration to a lot of LGBTQ plus scientists as an out lesbian at the top of her field. And then the last one I was going to mention, because it leads to something else, was Lauren Esposito. She's an arachnicologist. Oh, like just into spiders? Oh, yeah. Oh. Spiders and uh, scorpions. Hmm. Um, and the only woman expert on scorpions in the world, what? which I just find amazing. She's the co-founder, and this is what I think is really cool, the co-founder of 500 Queer Scientists. It's a visibility movement and professional network that boosts the recognition and awareness of LGBTQ people working in STEM fields. And you got to check this out. It's at 500queerscientists.com. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and I was reading a lot of people and anybody can add their profile. And it's... That's super cool. It's just their picture... And what they do, and it's it's really cool. It's so, um, I don't know. Neat. It's just a lot of people doing a lot of cool things. Mm-hmm. I also read about um, Autobahn had created this Let's Go Birding Together. It's groups formed all over in the in the U.S. And it creates a dedicated space for LGBTQ plus bird lovers. So mm. it's like a safe space because a lot of people are really into bird watching. Mm-hmm. But, and I'm not really going to go into this, but I read a little bit about, you know, a lot of problems that biologists or naturalists or scientists scientists run into in is when they're doing field work and a lot of the field work are in kind of like remote areas yes very conservative areas a lot of times where there's not a lot of acceptance of anyone different or you know or being themselves let's Mm -hmm. say different from what they think should be normal yeah however what they run into that a lot and so they feel uncomfortable a lot Mm -hmm. of times doing field work or even as much you know as far as bird watching so this creates a space where they can find like-minded people to go do the things they love with oh that's cool yeah yeah so i thought that was really cool We are so excited to tell you about one of our amazing sponsors, Who Gives a Crap? Premium Recycled Toilet Paper. Toilet paper, you say? How can that be bad for the environment, Jen? Well, actually, toilet paper is made from virgin trees, Megan. And we all know that no one should be out there sacrificing virgin trees. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of devil worshipery is this? 
But seriously, we all know this is bad for forests and the animals that depend on those forests. Also, it takes a lot of water and energy to process those sacrifice trees into toilet paper along with bleach, formaldehyde, and other unfriendly stuff that is used to make your toilet paper strong and soft for your delicate tushies. Want to feel like you're helping the environment each time you wipe? Well, try Who Gives a Crap. They offer both 100% recycled toilet paper and premium 100% bamboo toilet paper. Mm, premium. They also have forest-friendly tissues and paper towels. The recycled toilet paper is made from post-consumer recycled paper like office supply paper and other home paper products. Don't worry, it's not made from used toilet paper because, ew. These are soft three-ply sheets made for a super comfy wipe. Like, it's really soft and supple for your nether regions. Who Gives a Crap is also one of the only toilet paper companies that comes in cute, plastic-free packaging. The toilet paper is wrapped in compostable, recyclable paper wrappers. The paper roll tubes are also fully recyclable and compostable, as well as the cardboard boxes used for shipping. And those colorful, fun paper wrappers can be upcycled in so many different ways. I've seen someone use it for, like, flower wraps. You can wrap birthday gifts. That's true. They're really cute. They're super cute. Yeah. So it like decorates your bathroom at the same time. And it's super affordable, Megan. You can get a box of 48. That's huge. That's a lot. They're all individually wrapped. And it can, if you have two people in your household, it can last you up to six months. So that's crazy. It's only a dollar a roll. And you also, if you go to their website and you subscribe, you get $10 off your first order. Sweet. Not that you need another reason to turn your bathroom into an eco-friendly paradise, but listen to this. Who Gives a Crap donates 50% of its profits to help build toilets in countries that have few to no toilets to improve sanitation for millions of people. The founders of Who Gives a Crap learned that two 2.3 billion people worldwide. That is 40% of our population. That's crazy. In the world. They didn't have access to a toilet. It just seems so weird to most of us who do have toilets yeah. everywhere we go. Mm -hmm. But because of this, nearly 300,000 children under the age of five die every year from diarrheal diseases caused by poor water and sanitation. That's almost 800 children per day or one child every two minutes. Mm. Not okay. So they launched Who Gives a Crap in 2012. Since then, they donated almost $6 million to local partners in this effort. That's insane. Okay, nature nerds, it's on. To make your first Who Gives a Crap order, use the link on our website sponsors page at you'regonnadieoutthere.com. There's one for the UK, there's one for US, and one for Australia. Mm -hmm. And by using this link, you go straight to the page that you can order from, and then you're also kind of helping us a little bit. Yeah, so get to wiping. <laughs> <laughs> get to wiping and feeling good about the environment. Yay! So I thought that the organization to support would be, the best one would be Pride in STEM. Prideinstem.org. It's a charitable trust run by an independent group of LGBTQ plus scientists and engineers from around the world. I think it might be based out of the UK. Okay. Not 100%. Um, but uh, they say they're proud of who we are and what we do. And they aim to showcase and support all people in STEM fields. That's very cool. So you can check that out. Like I said, prideinstem.org. I don't know if we really have like, you know, emergency preparedness kit. I mean. No. Yeah. There. I don't think that there is an emergency preparedness kit here. I mean, there's nothing that I could make light of with Rachel Carson. She's freaking amazing. She's yeah. She's so amazing. Just, um, and I don't think there's anything you could do. I think, you know, you could just have your ally card in yeah, your bag. hundred percent. Like nice and laminated right in the rain ally <laughs> card so it doesn't get ruined. I'm here for you. It's safe. 
obviously you should have Silent Spring in your emergency preparedness kit. So I think, you know, a right in the rain ally card that is undestroyable. Yes. And uh, a copy of Silent Spring. With your copy of Silent Spring. Yeah, you could use your ally card as a bookmark. And then when you're reading, everybody knows like, okay, you're safe with me. Let's go look at some birds. Let's go. I mean, I'm not super into birding, but yeah. I'm not either. I'm like, I'll let's go. go let's go. Like, <laughs> let's go look for some turtle tracks. <laughs> I'm, I'm there for you. Yeah, I love it. That's great. Oh my god, I love Rachel Carson so much. Yeah, I I know that this wasn't as like you know crazy thrilling as most of our stories, but I felt like it's it was important. Yeah, it's interesting, and I know there's probably a lot of young biologists yes. that don't know much about Rachel Carson or any of these scientists. Also, go read a Sand County Almanac right <sighs> now. So good. Yeah. Yes, Aldo Leopold. Do it. Both on my shelf right now. Oh, me too. And they're, they're, well, they're like the staple. Of, they are. Like what you should have. So That's the truth. That was a great story. And I love learning more about her other than just, you know, her book. Mm-hmm. and She activism. was a real human with real, real human. feelings. And I think sometimes really amazing. I think sometimes people forget about that. Scientists, yeah. you know, they, they imagine you just have like a beaker and stuff. But like, <laughs> that's not really what's happening. Like we, you know, people have lives. People have lives and they have feelings and they have family issues and drama mm-hmm. and all the things they have to deal with and illnesses. And it's all part of life. And they're and and that's the thing is they have to give that extra push to produce some amazing mm-hmm. stuff. I think going through a time where they could feel that however they loved people was not accepted it's like a whole nother level of stress and oh yeah being persecuted but as a mm-hmm. biologist you care so much about your work mm-hmm. you know and and this rings true for anybody that you know has any career job that they're really passionate, passionate about, about. Mm-hmm. to know that you could be discredited and your work then be discredited mm-hmm. because of your choice and who you love. That's ridiculous. It's frightening. Yeah. Or how you identify. I'm glad that things are changing. Yeah. In that way. Not. I mean, obviously, they should have changed earlier and it should be changing faster. And All there's that. lots of things that That's- we're still working on. So we have a Patreon to shout out. We do. We're very excited. Thank you so much, Emma, for joining our Patreon family. Yes, thank you. We hope you enjoy the bonus episodes. Um, Anybody else who would like to become a patron, please go to our website, you're going to die out there.com and click the link for the Patreon site. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of bonus episodes. And also you can write to us. We can write to us anyway on Instagram and we'll write you back. It's the truth. (laughs) I know we're like hugely famous and all, but you know. (laughs) Anyway, but thanks for the support. We really appreciate it because what we do, we do it for free. And we do it because we just love you. We love telling stories. So thank you, Jen, for that amazing story. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Bye.